This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So I get email regularly from people who watch Fox News quoting Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity to educate me because I'm an outspoken critic of the lies of Fox News. But I'm getting them this week. So unlike in the past, I'm actually responding because I'm telling them you must have missed the news that Fox has admitted lying to you repeatedly about the stolen election and is paying more than three quarters of a billion dollars for those lies. They've made you into a chump. And I'm explaining to them how big that amount of money is. If you took a million dollars and paid it back a dollar a day, it would take you about 11 days. If you did this amount of money for a dollar a day, it would take something like 24 years. It is a staggering sum that they are paying for perpetrating a fraud on America. And interestingly, when I've sent this back to people, they haven't come back at me to argue. Maybe they're following my advice to find a reliable source of news. We're not chumps here today in Ohio. <laughs> We're not going to pay attention to the nonsense you're sending me from the liar who was Tucker Carlson. It is Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Olela Tassi, and Courtney Astafi is making a rare Thursday appearance because Laura is out doing her job at the Women's Summit that's happening in Cleveland today. Let's begin. Lisa, there's a bill in the Ohio House called the Parental Parents' Bill of Rights, which could not be more of a BS name of this bill. <laughs> is it just another in a long line of bills aimed at stoking the culture wars? When you call something a bill of rights, you're hearkening to the real bill of rights, which is substantive. A parental bill of rights, you would think, would include money to help parents and rights of parents to know school curriculum and discipline and things like that. What is this one? This one looks like a solution in search of a problem. It's House Bill 8, also known as the Parents' Bill of Rights. It's currently being debated in the House Primary and Secondary Education Committee. So some of the highlights of House Bill 8, they say that schools must have policies that allow parents to review sexually explicit instructional materials. Teachers must provide alternative instruction without such content if parents request it. Schools are required to notify parents of a change in services or a monitoring of the student's mental and physical health, and they cannot encourage students to hide issues from parents. So one thing that was removed, uh, they removed a provision that protects protected withholding teachers withholding information if that knowledge would result in abuse, neglect, or abandonment of the student. So uh, this seemed to get a lot of people fired up. Um, sponsors of the bill, DJ Swearingen, the Republican from Huron, and Sarah Carruthers of uh, Cincinnati. Uh, Carruthers says the bill doesn't give parents additional authority, but it protects the ability to direct the upbringing, education, health care, and mental health of their kids, which is, I I think the definition of what a parent is just saying. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is part of that effort to 
get their base riled up on something that's not an issue. New York Times or Washington Post, one of them had a great story over the weekend about how the transgender issue has become the talker. It's partly because of Fox News and all the lies they tell, but it's partly because the Republicans, after gay marriage became legalized, they lost one of their red meat Mm -hmm. issues. So they started polling and they found, huh, transgender, that could get people riled up, even though it is in an infinitesimally small percentage of the population and is not a problem in America because they've been able to rally it and get Fox News and their acolytes to talk about it. It's become something people talk about like it's a crisis. This is the same thing. There's no need for this. And it is certainly not a parent's bill of rights. They, they call it that looking to weaponize the longstanding traditions of the media. Well, if that's what they call it, that's what we'll have to report Mm -hmm. it is. No, it's not. It's not a parent's bill of rights. It's a bogus bill to rally the base. And it's just silly we live in a state where this kind of thing plays. Although there are other states that are crafting similar b- bills of rights, what, whether they call it that or not. Uh, Maria Bruno with uh, Equality Ohio says, this is a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's a concerted effort to craft a narrative that teachers are indoctrinating kids. And that's the key word right there, indoctrinating or grooming. They like to use that as well. So this is the second hearing of this bill in the committee. Interestingly enough, Nobody has come forward to testify in support of House Bill 8, nor did anyone submit any testimony in support of the bill. So that's kind of telling. The amazing part of this is any poll done of parents of school kids finds huge confidence in the schools. This is just another onerous thing on teachers. My wife is a teacher, full disclosure. But every time they open their curriculum book now, they're going to have to think of a a checklist of Mm -hmm. all these things the legislators are putting on them before they can speak a word. It's just stupid. And it's a complete lack of trust in the elected school boards and the trained professional teachers to educate the children the correct way. It's also, come on, let's face it, it, it's trying to block ideas from, from kids because it'll somehow, like you said, groom them, which is preposterous, but it plays with a certain population. I think it's the same population that's been writing me about Tucker Carlson and Fox News. It's a stupid bill. If it passes, it's going to create problems for teachers, and it is a wolf in sheep's clothing. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A move to create a special August election to sneak through a constitutional amendment, making it harder for voters to pass constitutional amendments, had all sorts of movement Wednesday, but nothing unexpected. Layla, what happened and what is the remaining hurdle for those like Secretary of State Frank LaRose who are working hard to weaken democracy in Ohio? Well, this definitely seems like it's unfortunately marching toward that August special election. Senate Joint Resolution 2, which would put the question on the ballot, and Senate Bill 92, which makes the August 8th election possible, both passed along party lines this week. The resolution passed 26 to 7. The bill passed 25 to 8. Representative uh, Nathan Manning, or Republican Nathan Manning from North Ridgeville voted with the Democrats, which was interesting. But now it's up to the Ohio House to pass the joint resolution. Uh, Earlier Wednesday, a committee in the House passed a similar measure, House Joint Resolution 1, and then sent it to the floor. And it seemed to be a pretty heated debate uh, or pretty heated committee meeting. Apparently, some members began chanting shame, shame, shame after the vote, and some were escorted from the room. Apparently, 37 people had signed up to testify during that committee hearing, and they cut it short after just a handful of people got to speak, and they called for the vote. The, the joint resolution 
won't require signature from the governor, but the Senate bill would. And they have to pass both of these because in December, they outlawed August elections. So they're hypocritically seeking an August election for this specific issue just so they can, I believe, undermine the voters who are likely to come out in November and and vote for the reproductive rights constitutional amendment in other purple states, constitutional amendments that enshrine reproductive rights into the state constitution passed with 52, 57% of the vote, but this issue could end up on the August ballot. It would change the requirements so that it would take 60% plus one vote to change the state constitution. It would also require signatures to be gathered from all 88 counties, which would be next to impossible. Yeah. I, I mean, if this does make the August ballot, it will be a vote on abortion. That, that'll be the way it's characterized. So I do think people will turn out and I do think it'll be defeated and it'll embarrass the people put it together. But there are always two hurdles to this. Everything that's happened so far, completely expected. Matt Huffman is trying to ram this through, chief hypocrite of the legislature. The Senate was always going to move forward. But the leader of the House is only the leader of the House because he has Democrats in the group that voted for him. And you would think that the Democrats would use that to say, don't do this. Don't do this. If you want it on the ballot, put it on the November ballot, do the right thing, or just with remove, remove their support. Why support him over Derek Merrin if he's going to abandon this? This is one place where he's in trouble. And they're counting votes. I don't know that they have the 60 votes they need to get this on the ballot. This is anti-democracy. That is the way it'll be portrayed for everybody who supported it. And that's got some people nervous. The second hurdle is what you said. Mike DeWine would have to sign this bill. Would Mike DeWine play chief hypocrite? He just signed a bill banning August elections. Is he really going to do an ends justify the means on abortion and say, yeah, August elections are bad news, but the ends justify the means? Probably because he really has shown no backbone of late. But the House vote is the more important one. Right. And I and I do think that he would he he would feel uh, fidelity to his his personal feelings about the abortion issue that is likely to hit the ballot in November. So I yeah. think that's that would that would very much sway his his uh, his choice there. Yeah. It's also you're you're basically telling Ohioans we're cheating. And I'm not sure Ohioans will will buy into that. This is you're, you're you're telling Ohioans we want to reduce the power of your vote. We're complete hypocrites because we've said August elections are a bad idea because they depress turnout, but we're using that to try and force it through. I don't know. I I think there's so many groups aligned against this that'll be out there messaging. I think this could really blow up in the face of the Republicans who are so drunk with power because of their supermajority. We'll see developments to come. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What did Justin Bibb have to say in his much-anticipated second State of the City address Wednesday night? Courtney, it sounds like, from what Layla told me, there were quite a few standing ovations, which are difficult to sit through in a speech. Uh, Yeah, there were a lot of applause lines. It was a pretty, it seemed, happy crowd last night at East Tech High School, which is where Bibb delivered his second speech this is, you know, his second speech is way different than what we got last year, his first his first attempt at this, because he was only 100 days into his time as mayor or so. And, and now he's got a, a much beefier record to talk about. So last year was a lot about looking forward, what his plans were for the year. And this year was a lot of 
look at what what irons in the fire I have going. You know, he, he took last night as an opportunity to dive into various proposals that are included in this in this deal he struck last week between himself and city council, $180 million for a slew of needs in Cleveland, including really his centerpiece plan here, which is $50 million to piece together vacant land and, and just land in general, clean it up and make it ready for for jobs that offer family sustaining wages. So there were and and his plans for the waterfront. So he he really had this universe of of things that he he's got moving and grooving, maybe not official approval for yet, but he was able to point to all these efforts. And 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 one big theme of the night was he really kind of had this theme of of barriers. He he talked about how he was holding the speech in the central neighborhood, home of all Carl and Lewis Stokes, where Langston Hughes started writing, he described it as a, a neighborhood that overcomes barriers. And, and he tried to translate that theme to what he's trying to do at City Hall. He said his administration's not cool with complacency and is willing to take on difficult challenges to get Cleveland where it needs to be. Layla, you sat through it too, and you were struck by his answer to the question about the football stadium, it wasn't really good news for the Browns owners, the Haslams. Yeah, that was, he was brief about it. He said his focus is going to be on developing the lakefront and, and finally bringing those plans to, uh, to the fore. But he, he kind of threw in a dig and said that he wants to protect the general fund from being tapped for maintenance for this building that, you know, hosts eight football games a year. <laughs> I mean, and he got a, a rousing applause for that. So I think the uh, the Haslams are, are in for a rough ride when they approach the city about this. A really rough ride. First, they worked against him getting elected. <laughs> and second, he has pretty much stripped them of the lakefront planning that they had launched. Uh, the, the constituents in Cleveland are no friends to the Haslam. And the mayor seems to know that uh, there was kind of a lack of information, though, about what will happen with the stadium that I guess that will come later. There's still we still don't know what the lakefront plan is because they're in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was notable some things that he didn't go into detail on. And that was a big one, Chris, the fact that he didn't dive into it makes sense. But that was that comment Layla's talking about that came through the question and answer session at the end. So he, he did kind of maneuver around that. And also, you know, I had a thought going into this, another big announcement that maybe could come with the state of the city held at East Tech High could have been some kind of news about the CEO to replace Eric Gordon. And, and last night, Bib asked for a few standing ovations and got him, of course, for Eric Gordon, who, you know, most of the community just, just lionizes for his work at CMSD and he's on his way out. But we didn't get news about the next CEO there. So I, I, it was stri- striking to me that the stadium and CEO search, two big things brewing at city in city government, didn't, didn't come to the forefront. But I, I think I'd be remiss. He didn't make a ton of news last night. He didn't have a lot of big new announcements. It was mostly going over things we already knew. But there were some tidbits of news in there. And one that I thought, Layla, correct me if I'm wrong, got, I, I think the biggest or one of the biggest applause lines of the night was his announced efforts that there's legislation coming, there are changes coming to building and housing and code enforcement. And he really talked about holding slumlords accountable 
and then also related efforts to clamp down on what properties can be transferred when they're under lead hazard control orders. So the crowd seemed to really like his comments about what he's looking to do for code enforcement. We don't have the details on that yet, but we know this will be a big topic at City Hall in the coming months. But yeah, it sounds like a hammer, though. It sounds like they're going to pick up a hammer for people that own lead poison properties and and try to impede the sale of them, which will reduce their value greatly unless they get them fixed. Is that, I mean, it's, that's what this sounds like, right? Yeah, it was it was strong language. Cleveland is 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 coming for you if you're not if you're not taking care of your tenants and residents appropriately. He's talking about bad conditions renters in Cleveland often find themselves in, and he's he, it was a line in the sand to me for sure. It was we're coming for you, slumlords. Well, and a lot of them are out of country, out of state landlords that are hard to deal with. So using some muscle to bring them in line is a great idea. Good for him. It was one of the more anticipated State of the City speeches in the time I've been in Cleveland. He had a lot of stuff that he's been announcing over the past month. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Lisa, you get my favorite story of the day. Is it a Cleveland curse? What happened to the brand new U.S. Navy combat ship, the USS Cleveland, almost immediately after its ceremonial launch? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the USS Cleveland was slightly damaged when it was launched after it was christened in Marionette, Wisconsin, in a shipyard on Saturday. So they use a side launch process. You've probably seen this on video, how it slides into the you know water sideways. But there was a tugboat that was too close, so it's struck the tugboat and then, um, you know, it damaged the ship above the waterline. So it's going to have to be repaired before sailing to its permanent base in Mayport, Florida. So, <laughs> oops. But then the the shipbuilder, which is on the Menominee River there in uh, Wisconsin, said that they're going to be phasing out side launches from now on. Um, but the USS Cleveland is the fourth Navy ship with the Cleveland name. It's 387 feet long. It has 98 sailor crew and two helipads. It's used for patrolling coastal coastal areas for mines and submarines and also for coastal warfare warfare and it's estimated cost is about 600 million to 800 million dollars but you know once you drive that off the lot and it gets damaged the price goes down <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't you think that after all the shipbuilding that's happened up there they would understand what the safety zone is I mean, it seems like this is a really hard mistake to make. You, that you would know where the boat's going to go because you've made so many of them. I, it's astounding. And of course, it's a ship named Cleveland. I got a note from a guy yesterday. He said, I can't resist. It's the typical Cle- Clevelander. Gets injured and retires to Florida. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, funny story. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Discovery Tours was big news five years ago when it abruptly closed, leaving all sorts of school groups unable to take trips they paid for. Later came charges of fraud and embezzling. How much time do federal prosecutors want the embezzler to spend in prison for dashing all those travel dreams? Courtney, what's the update? 
Yeah, prosecutors, they're they're asking for as much as seven years in prison for Joseph Cipolletti. He's the former VP of Discovery Tours based in Mayfield. And you'll remember this from a few years ago. Some 5,000 kids across North, Northeast Ohio had paid for school trips through this company. Then the company folded and they were just out the money. And, and basically what federal prosecutors found was you know, embezzlement here. That's what ultimately caused the cancellation of school trips. And what's interesting is that there's been this back and forth between federal prosecutors and Cipolletti's defense attorney arguing about what the appropriate sentence is here. Federal prosecutors, you know, there was a plea agreement that called for three years, but federal prosecutors have since upped their recommendation to as many as seven years. After finding out that, you know, Cipolletti embezzled more than the original $600,000 that authorities initially discovered. They, they found that he embezzled more than $1.5 million. And so that increased prison sentence that they're asking for is reflective of that additional money. But Cipolletti's defense attorney is saying those are the wrong numbers to use. He's pointing to sloppy bookkeeping at the, at the family business there and, and really trying to assign some of the blame that way. And he's saying Cipolletti should only be punished for the $90,000 or so that school kids were out for these trips, not this additional money that was embezzled allegedly from the family business. There's a special place in hell for people who crush the dreams of kids, right? I mean, this you just should not do that. These are kids that were scrambling because they were left hanging. The, the, the new information you mentioned about how much money he embezzled fits because at the time we were reporting all the stuff that he was doing with the money and it didn't seem to match. It sounds like federal prosecutors have gotten much closer to what he stole and good luck for the defense attorney trying to convince the judge otherwise. Be interesting to see how much time he gets. He deserves to spend a good period of time in prison. Yeah, and the sentencing is this morning, so we should have an answer today. We'll be talking about it tomorrow on Today in Ohio. Reporter Caitlin Durbin did some talking with people with expertise on the office of the sheriff to get at exactly who a sheriff should report to. As expected, opinions differ. But, Layla, one of these proposals seems incredibly dangerous to me because it would leave the sheriff answerable to no one. Hmm. Yes, you're right. And the reason, like you said, that this debate is heating up now is because of these two proposals that were that are before county council. There was a hearing this week about it. One of these proposals proposed by Councilman Marty Sweeney would clarify that the sheriff reports directly to the county executive, who is Chris Chris Ronane. The other proposed by Councilman Patrick Kelly says that the sheriff would be free to make decisions about jail operations without seeking permission from the county executive. Renane, not surprisingly, likes the Sweeney proposal. He said, we're, we're living in a time where the public wants more oversight of law enforcement, not less. So having the sheriff report to the executive just makes sense. He also pointed to the problems the county identified recently with the commissary account and all of that mismanagement of the inventory and money that might not have come to light had it been solely under the oversight of the sheriff's office, Ronane said. So, but, but former Sheriff Bob Reed appeared before council to champion Patrick Kelly's legislation. He said the jail operated much more smoothly when he was an autonomous sheriff before the charter change. And once he became an appointed sheriff under County Executive Ed Fitzgerald at the time, Reed said hiring stalled and he repeatedly requested to hire more medical staff. And those those requests were ignored. He suggested that that 
paved the way for the terrible conditions and jail deaths that we saw later, which gave rise to the criminal investigations surrounding that. Reed felt all of that might have been prevented. And he said when he began complaining about the staffing problems, he was fired. So Caitlin Durbin then reached out to Fitzgerald, and he rejected Reed's take on those years. He called it complete science fiction and said Reed resigned after it became clear that his performance was just mediocre. And then he hired Frank Bova as the sheriff and operations improved until the next executive replaced him. So Fitzgerald said, you have to pick the right person for the job. It doesn't matter whether it's an elected system or an appointed system. He pointed out that you know, our longest serving elected sheriff, Gerald McFall, was indicted. So the notion that electing the sheriff will professionalize the position is absurd. The I, falsehood, happen to, I happen to agree with that. But the, okay. the falsehood of what Reed said is when he was autonomous. He was never autonomous. The voters elected him. The voters were who he answered to. What they're proposing here is once the, the sheriff is appointed, there's nobody you answer to. The The county council would solely be in charge of removing him and it would have to be for cause. You can't have that. I mean, think about if the police chief of Cleveland was autonomous. I mean, you just can't do it. If you want him to have the autonomy that Reed had, then put a charter change on the ballot and have the sheriff be elected. But this Kelly proposal is a disaster. I, I mean, our editorial board is going to have to take this up. I, I, I'm, I, I'm not going to debate whether or not it should be elected. But he's got to answer to somebody. Somebody's got to be able to hold him accountable. And under the Kelly proposal, this would be wildly crazy. If McFall existed under that situation, the abuses would have been way, way worse. And look, the other thing we got to remember, this goes against the will of the voters. The voters changed the charter to put the sheriff under the county executive. That's what we all voted for. If, If it's a mistake change the charter. But you can't just unilaterally by legislation say, yeah, 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 we don't care about the charter. We're going to do what we want. I mean, that's the way they operate in Columbus. Are the Democrats taking a page from Matt Huffman and and company? So you mentioned that that only county council would have the power to remove the sheriff. Is that even clear under this Patrick Kelly proposal? I, what it, what would be the mechanism for removing the sheriff? The, the way I understand it, they would they would only be able to remove him for cause. Um, it, it's a crazy idea. It, it, look, if if Patrick Kelly wants him to be autonomous, then then talk his colleagues into putting it on the ballot. But what they're proposing is a disaster in the making. It's just a bad idea. I guarantee you, it doesn't exist anywhere else in the country. Uh, so we need to we need to pay attention. As I understood it, the Kelly idea never got out of committee. So it's not really right now on the table. But but if it does, it's kind of a threat. Plus, it'll be lawsuits because they'll say you're violating the charter. This county council is such filled with such cuckoo birds. I don't get <laughs> the way they operate. I mean, yeah, it used to be the Cleveland City Council was looked at as the the the, the lame brains. And county council was professional and it's completely turned around. I mean, these guys just do dumb stuff. And I hate to say it because Marty Sweeney is such a sinister force there. His proposal is the one that fits the charter. Well, county council, they say they're still gathering information on these two proposals, and that will include letters that they expect to be receiving from the other five former sheriffs detailing their experiences reporting to the executive. But you know that those letters are going to say that it was terrible to report to the executive because they we all a, ran through the revolving door of and we had a bad executive. I mean, we had a disastrous right. executive. I mean, that that you can't do it that way. You've got to look. Chris Ronayne 
campaigned on fixing this and he's been in office for three and a half months. He deserves the chance to fix it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, the Stokes Courthouse in Cleveland still seems like a new piece of the Cleveland skyline to me, even though it's 20 years old. But by today's standards, it is not energy efficient. What does the Biden administration want to do about that? Well, the General Services Administration announced that they are going to be giving $10 million to reduce the carbon footprint of four Northeast Ohio federal buildings. Uh, for the Carl B. Stokes Courthouse here in Cleveland, they're going to get an additional $20 million to renovate the plaza and the entrance. And what this is, is they're trying to renovate buildings to make them more energy efficient, and they want to use low carbon emission construction materials. So the other three courthouses that will get upgrades include the Howard Metzenbaum U.S. Courthouse in downtown Cleveland that was replaced by the Stokes Building 20 years ago, but it still has a bankruptcy court and offices. Also, the John F. Sieberling Federal Building and Courthouse in Akron and the Thomas D. Lambros Building and Courthouse in Youngstown. The Metzenbaum Courthouse is a treasure. It's got the most beautiful courtrooms I've probably ever been in. It's where they filmed the movie Presumed Innocent with Harrison Ford just because it's such a beautiful place. It always struck me that before bad guys were sent off to prison, they had to sit in that room surrounded by all of this majesty. The new courthouse does not have anywhere near that feeling to it. It it, Doesn't it surprise you, though, that a building put up 20 years ago is not energy efficient. I mean, we kind of knew what energy efficiency was back then and insulation and things like that. How did we mess that I, up? I don't know, but a, a, a lot of this is focusing on like upgrading, you know, the HVAC, you know, boilers and chillers. They want to replace gas-fired heaters with electric units, and then they want to install um, LED lights. So this is all part of a Biden executive order that was signed last year to uh, achieve net zero emissions in government buildings by 2050. So yeah, but if you think a 20-year-old boiler or chiller is probably near the end of its life, yeah, probably. And if you and if you make it more efficient, it does help with climate change, even if members of NOACA don't believe climate change is caused by humans. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's do one more. What's the word, Courtney, on when people 65 and older and those who are immunocompromised can start getting a second dose of the COVID bivalent vaccine now that six or more months have elapsed since their last one? Yeah, it sounds like it's imminent. So on Tuesday, the FDA signed off on folks who are 65 and up or those with weakened immune systems to get an additional COVID booster shot. And then we saw the CDC shortly thereafter sign off. So that paves the way for shots to be available, you know, sometime really soon. Many places told our reporter, Julie Washington, that they were just waiting for that final approval to come through their official channels on Wednesday before opening up the appointment process. But at least one person told Older, that they'd already received a, a shot at a local CVS. So it seems to be moving and moving forward now. I should do the full disclosure. That one person is me. <laughs> I got up yesterday, saw the CDC news, went on the CVS site, answered all the questions. They have all my records and they said, you qualify. I, I presume they had updated their computer, but they're telling her officially they have not. Anyway, it's good news for people that want to get it. I one of the rare people that hasn't had COVID. I want to keep it that way. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Thursday. Good discussion. Thank you all. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens. Friday is coming. We'll wrap up the week of news.